Good morning, afternoon, and or evening, depending on when you are listening to this. I am Steve. And I'm Pat. We're here to bring you in-depth analysis and discussion around everything to do with real estate and home loans. So grab yourself a cup of something that makes you happy, or keep your hands on the wheels and enjoy. As you were talking about um, the crash, and if I'm a millennial who grew up with their parents telling me I needed 20% down, and then in 2008, 9, 10, I'm thinking about buying a house, but I have a lender tell me you can't buy a house with 20 unless you have 20% down. If my mentality is that loans are really hard to get and they're really well regulated, I have a sort of two-pronged question. Is there a chance that my brain is thinking that's a good thing because it can help keep a crash? From happening because I know a lot of people are worried about that it's a conversation I have with many many people so one of the things I'd like to hear you talk about is your thoughts on the economy in general as well as what you see for the future of real estate and lending and do you think the loosening of all these regulations could potentially let's jump 10 years into the future and look back on now could it hindsight 2020 from 2031 feel like predatory lending that led to another crash? I, you know, I don't think regulations are really loosening. I think we've got enough data now to make a little bit more educated decisions. Um, certainly the loans that were being done back in the day were irresponsible. There's no question. The hard part, and, and when, when I dial back, it, it's it, right now everything's verified, right? Like for the, for, the, for the most part, until you get into that non-QM space, which would be for a probably a dedicated podcast, but a very unique situation. So it's not it, it's not for the masses, I guess. Um, and it's probably more for, uh, for the most part, it, a seasoned borrower, a seasoned homeowner, that sort of thing. So um, we'll put that in a box for later. But as far as what's happening right now, I would say we're, we're in one of the safest places that we can be from a qualification standpoint. Um, you know, all incomes verified, all assets are tracked and verified. So we're, we're not putting people as lenders, when I say we, nobody's really getting put into a mortgage that I feel like they can't afford, less a life event, right? Like you lose your job, you know, I lose my job, you lose your job. Different story. Yeah, different story. But but barring that, we're not putting people in situations where they're over their skis out of the gate, right? Um, rapid appreciation in today's market. Uh, where do I see it going? You and I have spitballed about this a little bit yeah. before. So um, this, is, this isn't new. And again, this is just an opinion. I'm not an economist. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a CPA. Um, I see the appreciation staying pretty strong. And eventually it will taper off. I don't see it, it going down. Barring something that happens on like a US or even a geopolitical or like a global economy scale, if things fall apart, right, real estate will follow. So I have a funny story about that, what you okay. just said. My joke when, when people used to ask me about like, is there going to be a crash? And I was like, listen, I just don't foresee that happening unless we have a global pandemic or something crazy happens. And I literally had a client close on a house three weeks. And this is a client that I constantly joked about the the global pandemic. Right. They closed on a house and three weeks later, COVID became a part of our lives. 
And he called me and he's like, I feel a little bit like you caused this. <laughs> and, and you can't not but feel guilty, I'm sure, a little bit. It's like, did I, did I will this to happen? Did I manifest this for all of humanity? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to everyone. Um, I don't mean to make light of COVID. Um, it's, no, it's... no, but that, it, it, and again, kind of the caveat there is if something was to happen, I mean, we've, we've gone through this, but I guess for real estate specifically, unless something happens economically, the, the outside of, of this, I don't see real estate slowing down too much because we have a supply and demand issue. And that's more where I see this because, you know, your, your basic economics with supply and demand, when supply is minimal, right, and demand is high, it's going to drive prices up. Like, and it, you, it could be a, it could be a cosmetic, it could be grain, you know, it's, it's a commodity ultimately in, in some way, shape or form. And not that I want to speak as somebody's home as a commodity, that sounds kind of bad, but it in is, a, in though. A way, yeah, it's, it's a commodity that we build memories. <clears throat> that's a really good way to that's a really good way to say it and so because building got hit so hard during the crash and it took builders a long time to get back into it and we still have supply chain issues so builders probably aren't even and i say probably i'm not a builder but they're they're probably not building at the capacity that they may be able to just because there are issues right now with supply chains things like that and we have to build so many homes just to catch up to a good equilibrium with you know, inventory, and I'll pitch that back to you. I mean, like inventory levels from what I hear are as low as they've ever been. I got into this in 2014, maybe the first six months I was in real estate, it was a balanced market. It was still a seller's market, but nowhere near to the level it was now. Like if you wanted to, if you really wanted to compete for a house, you wrote an offer for like $5,000 over and the seller was ecstatic. And that has completely shifted over the last eight years. And I really saw it in about 2016 is where I, 2015, 16 is where it just exploded. And there was no real, you know, like, I think it was just kind of like an instant recovery. I made a graph a long time ago showing like, had we never had the crash in 2016, prices just almost overnight caught up to where they would have been had we never had the crash. And it made so much sense because everybody's like, these prices are insane in Portland. And so I, I did that, like a historical graph going all the way back to 1980. Good for you. Yeah, well, I mean, because people kept asking me, like, Steve, what's going on? I'm like, I've been doing this for six months. I don't know. I don't have the answers. And I was just regurgitating what I was hearing other brokers say. And I didn't, I mean, I had six months experience. I didn't know why I felt this, but I could feel that what I was saying wasn't true. So I spent probably about three weeks putting together all this data and it made sense to me where I was like, okay, we're where we are plus about two or 3%. And if you think about what Portland was back in pre prior to the crash, you're talking about pre Portlandia, pre Grimm, pre Portland is the best place that you got to move to. You can retire when you're 30. Like it, there wasn't, it was a cool city. I missed that boat, clearly. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> welcome back. I mean, you're from here, so you, yeah. I mean, you've seen the growth. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And it's, you know, um, just to talk about something that's a little bit sad, uh, last week a building went up in fire. I don't know if you know this, but really good stuff and Lounge Lizard and Riyadh's and Thai Touch are all gone. And it's so tragic. There are these things happening that feel to me like the end of an old era of Portland. And progress is inevitable. And there's a lot of mixed feelings in Portland. You know, like, 
I have a very pragmatic approach to life. So it's like, I read about, like really good stuff is one of the first places my brother took me to when I came up to visit him when he when I was in high school. It, it was just a treasure trove of memories of just like, it was the place of one man's junk is another man's treasure. And I don't want to go off on a tangent where I get sad about like the loss of old Portland, but I've watched it happen. Great things have popped up in its place. It's just that we get nostalgic. No doubt. No doubt. The past. It's hard, I think, to see because like as you as you're talking through it, like it takes me back too through all of that and going like, man, we've been in an inventory crunch for quite some time, really, and it's gotten worse lately, and that's why I think ultimately things may plateau eventually but I don't see a crash coming. And home has changed. And I mean, that's another one that I'll ask you because since COVID, everybody's life has changed in, in one way or another. I don't know of one person in my entire circle that has been like, yeah, my life hasn't changed, you know, pretty dramatically for the most part. And I don't see us going back like, I think this is going to change the way a lot of people look at things for the rest of their lives. Do you think it will cause more movement from homes to homes within families? Or do you think it has shifted people to wanting to find that forever home? Or do you think it's there's still going to be a lot of movement? I think both. I know that I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth when I say that. But what I mean by that is I think there's going to be a little bit of a, a level setting because people are going to just be excited to get back to normal. So life is going to get back to normal and we hope life is going to get back to normal. The semblancy of normal, right? Like, okay, I think there's going to be a little bit of a pause, but what happens when employer is like, you know what, we're going to go with a hybrid work model. So I think in that case, like people might not know today that they want an office or some type of space in their house because that's going to be something that's going to last beyond just COVID for them. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to tweak. Once they get comfortable, I think there will be a little bit of a pause, but you have this swath of buyers that are on the sidelines right now because of inventory that are just waiting to do that. The extreme appreciation, and, and I'll ask, I, I guess I'll throw this one back to you too, is like, do you think move up buyers are going to be as common? Because you, you kind of over history, you see the starter home into the mid range home into the you know, as you continue to earn more money possibly into I'm having another kid or, you know, this, that, or the other thing that's causing like a move up buyer. And that's the thing where I don't really know how that works with appreciation because are people priced out of a move up buy because of that? And if that's the case, I think it's going to be really hard because there's not going to be that starter home anymore for that, that generation that's trying to buy homes and, and get in there. So I, my opinion, my response to that is I think different than a lot of realtors would, like my answer will be different than a lot of realtors will give you. In terms of people moving up, I've had a lot of people call me over the last 18 months and say, we want to buy, we want to, or we want to sell, we want to sell, you know, just, and part of that has been, there's a pandemonium a little bit of like, oh my gosh, look at how much money I can sell my house for. I bought it for four ten two years ago, and it's now like Redfin tells me it's worth five fifty. Steve, what's your opinion? I'm like, oh, that's relatively close. Like, let's talk about it. Um, 
But also keep in mind, all that profit that you're going to make, you're going to need to put into your next offer to compete with what's going on. So the question I've been bouncing back to people is, do you need to move? And, you know, I've, I've probably talked myself out of a lot of sales over the last year or so. Which is, which is a good quality to have. It's, it's an interesting dichotomy to be in sales and talk people out of selling stuff when my livelihood depends on whether or not people buy and sell. Um, but if it, thank you for saying that. It feels good not to just be like, let's do it. So that's one of the questions I always ask people is, do you need to? You know, like, if you're living in a two-bedroom, one-bath house and just found out you're pregnant with quadruplets, yes, you need to. If you, like, and everyone's need is different than someone else's. But, so I can't speak to whether or not someone actually does need to. But when people have just been caught up with the, like, look at how much time I can sell my house for, you know, like, I've, I've talked them out of it. And it's like, I think you should talk to Pat about refinancing. You know, you can take off five or six hundred dollars off of your mortgage and, you know, start saving up until you guys really do need to move or refinance, remodel. Like, if you can be happy in your house, let's talk about that. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. And I mean, and that's that's the piece that like everything is so specific to an individual. Right. And I don't know. I don't know what it's going to lead to at the end of end of COVID or what we would look at as normal because I don't, I don't think anybody's going to know what normal is until years maybe after all this is, is done because we're also going through like, like and, and kind of go off on the tangents that we go off on. And I read an article recently about the great resignation. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So it, there was this thing and it popped up and I was so curious about it. And like people are resigning from their jobs at like record numbers. And it's, it's, like, it's a thing. They're calling it the great resignation. And I was, it kind of caught me off guard because I was like, why? Also, where is their money coming from? There's also there's so much opportunity out there for employment right now because businesses are hungry to hire people. I think these two are correlated in some way, which goes back to the two being the great resignation and, and what the world's going to look like and like what housing is going to do because there's so many of these people that are like nomadic now. They're like, okay, I don't really want to be tied down to a spot or I can work and live in a different, I can, I can work here, but I can live here. And when you were asking a while ago, and it just kind of triggered this thought is like, what do you think is going to happen with movement? I think you're going to see more relocation than we've ever seen. I think there's going to be people that are going to fall in love with the Pacific Northwest, um, that are going to be drawn to Portland specifically for a variety of reasons that may not need to work here. We've already seen a lot of migration from California. And I also I, think we're going to be seeing a lot more with climate change. Uh, totally. I mean, we might be the new Southern California in 40 years at the rate that things are going. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, I do everything I can to not be a salesman or push people. One of the, like, I don't know if it's going to happen in the next two or three years, five to seven years, 10 to 15 years, but at some point, people are just going to get tired of that heat and they're going to start coming up. And I, I, I really struggle with how to, like, I don't want to be Paul Revere running down the beach, dinging a bell and be like, buy a house before it's too late. But there's part of me that wants to. And it's a really hard dichotomy for me because I firmly believe the right time to buy is when you're ready. The right time to sell is when you're ready. But sometimes I think people, there's a lot of people that are on the fence mm -hmm. that are like, we want to wait until prices come down, which I, I agree with you. I think 
at some point, and I don't know when, they'll hopefully level off because this sort of a growth and appreciation is unsustainable. You know, if we're talking I about agree, I agree with that. I mean, $100,000 year over year. Like, I had a listing that sold in 2020. The buyer for, I'm, I'm making up numbers because I don't remember what it was, sold for 525. Exactly one year later, those buyers decided they didn't want to live there anymore for personal reasons. It sold for 625. They had done absolutely nothing to the house. It was this perfect case study of like, okay, the exact same house is worth $100,000 a year later. If that grows, if the, that continues, that house is worth $1,025,000 in four years. Which prices everybody out of the market, right? Because there, there, there becomes a time where the supply and demand from my, my pragmatic brain, you and I are a lot alike that way because my, you know, economics says supply and demand is going to drive up prices, you know, but it's also going to only drive them up so far to where nobody just buys a house, right? Like they're just, they're not comfortable with that. It's over their skis. It doesn't make sense. And we do have to figure out something in housing, right? Because people want home ownership. There was another article that I read recently about, um, which is, is something else that we could talk about down the road. Like it's never, we have never seen so many roommates buying houses together. Like people that are not your, what you would consider maybe a traditional family that are trying to get into real estate to pool funds together to, to, to have home ownership. People want home ownership. Um, but the, and people are putting off a lot of things, like right? Like marriage, kids. I mean, a lot of that stuff, COVID probably paused a good chunk of some of that stuff. But we've seen a lot of that stuff kind of get pushed back. But the one thing that we are seeing now, which is different because, and again, I go back to millennials because there's just been so much going on with millennials as far as they're the biggest driver of home ownership right now that they want to get into the market. Because forever, millennials were like, they're never going to buy homes. They don't want anything to do with homes. They just want to go do whatever they want. They just want to go eat their avocado toast. And that's probably (laughs) a quote from an article somewhere that is not far off. Really? No, I mean, I mean, that's kind of like the older generation throws a lot of shade at the younger generation being like, well, maybe if you just didn't eat avocado toast. And it's like, no, the avocado toast is not my reason for not buying a home. It's many other things. Right. And now that's kind of changing. Like millennials are wanting home ownership. They're, I would argue, starving for it. Right. But it's just they're, they're, they're in a situation where prices are going up. Right. Like, what are we going to do? And, you know, one income is tough to you know to be confident enough to say do i want to live here for an extended period of time do i want to invest this kind of money do i have this kind of money do i want to be strapped with that and i think housing in general there's going to have to be some kind of solve to because to your point like it's going to have to plateau a little bit the thing that i think though is i don't think it's going to go down i think we're going to see that blip of a plateau and i'm not sure when but then it will stay consistent or maybe gradually right but i don't maybe a small dip because everybody's going to panic when it plateaus right like when it plateaus it's going to be like the crash is coming yeah oh my gosh you know but i don't think it would be warranted to crash because you don't have the economic you know not economic i should say but you don't have the mortgage issues that you had back when it did crash from a real estate perspective like people aren't going to be walking away from their homes. The only way that they would do that is if they lost their jobs, which kind of goes back to that whole thing. Like if we have an economic crisis in the United States or, or globally, right? That, that's, what would, that's what would cause 
a crash in the market. If people start losing their jobs, then they can't pay for their homes. But they're not going to be in a situation where they can't pay for their homes because they were put into a mortgage that they didn't qualify. said something to me once and I'm paraphrasing because it was a long time ago but um, that fear of like not wanting to buy a house because you're afraid of there being a crash or some reason that homes are going to lose all their value and in response to humans feeling safer as renters you said something along the lines of how much more protection you have as a homeowner. Like even if you don't have the means to buy your home, I think a lot of people are absolutely terrified of not being able to make their payments and going into foreclosure and that whole process, which is a tragedy. And I'm not saying it's not. Timeline me, like let's say I lose my job and I stop making my payments. How much longer am I in that house before I get kicked out? Most servicers want to work with you. Like, like flat out, I will tell you that. Like, they want to set up some kind of plan. They want to, they want to help you work through your your mortgage situation, right? Whereas a landlord is more, which is why we have a moratorium on or had. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not as up to speed on the rental moratorium where that stands. So um, nobody gets to to quote me on that one. <laughs> well, um, also by the time but, we actually get this up on on the internet, it might. it could be totally different. Um, the renters that don't pay right like they're the landlord's going to want to get you out as soon as possible right like the process of short selling a house or foreclosing on a house and in this case it would be more of a foreclosure which i don't you know personally i don't really understand because you would have so much equity in the home but a lot of things that are emotionally attached and you know when if you lose your job like how do I handle this situation, right? Like you call your servicer, you explain the situation. There's things called forbearance um, that people can help, the servicer can help you with. Um, they they want to keep you in, in that home. It really is a last resort. And quite frankly, like I don't know, um, I don't know how long foreclosing on a home is a is is a process. I mean, it can take a year. It can take a couple years. Um, and it's not something that people really want to do. And in today's market, what we're looking at with all of the rapid appreciation, nobody's underwater, right? Like unless they're doing irresponsible stuff with that equity, right? And and even even then, today, tomorrow that could happen if we did see a huge dip in the real estate market, and then you're underwater. But for the most part, um, there's a lot of guidelines around people not extracting all of the equity out of their homes nowadays. Like it's just not a, a really a common thing as it was um, because there was so much speculation before the crash where people would be taking cash out of one home to buy another home and stating their income. And, you know, it was really easy to kind of, for lack of a better term, create your own individual Ponzi scheme. <laughs> um, and, and it was, I don't, I don't want to say widely accepted, but, in certain circles it was accepted and that was kind of like a you know a business model whereas i just i don't see that being something that comes and i've actually had this conversation a lot more recently and i'm, I'm not really sure why like it's just kind of come out of the woodworks probably in the last two or three months everybody's starting to speculate about a potential crash and other than people talking about it 
I don't know what indicators there really are that that would happen other than we've been on a good roll. So does, do people just assume, Hey, we've been on a good roll. History says we're going to crash. I sometimes wonder if it, you know, if I've been in Portland since 2000, like when I graduated from college, this is a funny story. My wife really wanted to buy a house and my parents kindly were, they were nice enough to say they would help us out with a down payment. And we went and looked, apparently we went and looked at like 10 houses and I don't have any memory of it. Zero. Like I was, my brain, like I wanted to go sow my wild oats, go to Chicago, go to LA. Like I had all these dreams that did not involve Portland. And um, I didn't, I, I didn't recall this until later when my wife said, you know, we went, do you remember that time we went and looked at a house over in Southeast? And at that time we could have bought what would now be a $750,000 house. It would have cost us like two seventy five. And like hindsight's twenty twenty, like I still would not have bought a house because I treasure my time in Chicago and LA and it gave me so much perspective on what I want to do, which is be in Portland, raise a family, and like I didn't know I wanted to do real estate, but I love it now. Um, but going back to if I'm in that mindset, if I've been around since early 2000s, you know, if I know home prices of in 2000 for that house are probably 180, 200, I'm guessing. And so if you're watching this house go from, just go from in your brain, $180,000 house is now selling for seven fifty. If you, you almost want to will it to come back down to one eighty. That makes sense. I can, I can understand that thought process. Actually, as you're talking through it, I never really thought about it from that perspective. It's like almost hoping for a crash. And I, I do sometimes wonder, like I've had conversations with buyers where I almost wonder if they're hoping for a crash. And I, I agree with you. I just don't see it happening, um, which is, you know, there's an eloquent way of saying that. But, you know, I, I've, I've had clients in the past that have taken two years to buy a house. And when they first started, they were... They put an offer in on a $600,000 house and got outbid. And then two years later, they bought a less expensive house that was no, you know, a completely different house. Mm -hmm. and, and I think sitting on the sidelines, right, there's definitely a cost associated with not doing it. And the one thing that history has shown, I mean, no matter who you talk to, home ownership, if you're in it for the long haul, is never a bad thing. It's actually the... I think it's the single largest like legacy wealth generator for, for families is, is real estate, right? Like being able to pass down a home from generation to generation is one of the best, if not the best way to build legacy wealth or wealth for your family or your heirs. So if it's something that you are kicking around the idea like, should I buy a home? Should I not buy a home? I don't, and, and again, this goes back to our conversation. I don't think there's ever a perfect time, right? Like you may get stung, but everybody's been stung in real estate at some point or another. Well, how know? many houses have you sold? Four. Have you ever made a killing on your, the sale of your house and also gotten a smoking deal when you bought a house? Never, never. The, the timing doesn't line up that way. Um, and I, I go back to, you know, my, my wife, um, my much better, smarter half, uh, she actually lost her rear. So my wife's a Floridian and I, I don't know the exact dates, but she had bought a townhouse 
in 2006. And this is way before me and her. And she had just got out of school. And um, I can't even remember the numbers, but I think she, she bought it for maybe around 180,000, 150 to 80. So let's give me some wiggle room on 165. Numbers. Let's call it that. Okay. Um, and I think at one point, at the lowest, it was worth like 60 grand. Um, so, and she, you know, she didn't short sell it. She didn't foreclose. Uh, heck, we actually just sold it not too long ago. It was a rental for us for quite a while. Nobody could have ever saw that. I mean, it was still a loss. All these, you know, when you look at it these years later, but it, but it came back in value, right? Like, so it, it was not the ideal situation, but in real estate, like you said, like in 2016, you did your graph, everything came back. Like it was back to where that happened. So if you're in it for the long haul, real estate is a good thing. But what people forget is you're also paying down your mortgage while you're at this. So you're building equity in, in something, right? And that equity, even though it's kind of like a teeter-totter, right? Like even though that, that thing did crash, you're still paying down the mortgage. So as you're paying down the mortgage and it's coming back, you're, you're earning equity. It's like a built-in savings account. And that's why I think I get so excited about real estate and finance because you rarely, rarely lose. And I mean, there's a lot of people out there that will disagree with me, but it's more of a time thing, right? Like if you get, if you get hosed with the timing, you bought, market crashed, and you have to sell and move, you're gonna lose. Like, but it's not very often that everything aligns to where that situation happens. And, you know, there's so many studies out there and I'm passionate about it because like home ownership can be such a positive thing. And for the most people it is, right? Like I love my home, it's my sanctuary. I'm sure you probably feel the, the, the same way. You know, yeah. my son goes to bed in his room you know, my wife and I are comfortable, we eat our meals there, you have family gatherings there, and it's just, it, it's home, and it's hard to put a value on that, but, you know, the other thing that we're talking about is the cost for capital to purchase that home right now, even though it's, you know, it's, things are rapidly appreciation and they can, or appreciating, and they can level off, but the cost to procure funds right now is the best it's ever been, you know? To invest in real estate right now, you have to also look at it from a financial picture because as history shows, I mean, we're in we're in the best interest rate environment that we've been in. Has it has it ever been lower? Like right now, we're. I mean, I'm going to speak for you because you can't talk about what rates are, right? Uh, I mean, I can give ranges, but yeah, it's better if you do on this okay. one. So we're roughly around three percent. You know, it's day by day, hour by hour, um, but we're right around three percent. It was a little bit lower about six months ago. But, you know, nominally, like 2.75 to 2.875. But has it ever been lower than that? Not in my time. You know, these are still the lowest interest rates that we've ever, that we've ever seen. And, you know, if it is your forever home, you're waiting for a deal from a purchase price standpoint might actually cost you from a financial standpoint, depending on what happens with interest rates. So let's talk about that for a sec. Okay. It's easier to, re let's just say right now we're at 3%. Okay. And we want to buy a $400,000 home. Taxes are, all, all things being, let's not talk about taxes and insurance because those can go up and down. Let's play the scenario forward and let's just say, Interest rate right now with a four hundred thousand dollar purchase. Four hundred thousand dollar purchase with ten percent down. 
let's do five percent down. Five percent down. So because that's going to be the highest. Like you're everything's talking about. Be yep, a three hundred eighty thousand dollar loan amount. Yes. And a three hundred eighty thousand dollar loan amount. Um, and and what Steve was saying, and I'm going to kind of speak for you here. All all things being equal, we're going to say the mortgage insurance is equal. We're going to say the taxes are equal. We're going to say the homeowners insurance is equal. So we're only going to work with principal and interest payments here. Yes. So that gives us an idea of how to compare it. And let's say um, the interest rate is moving to three percent. Three percent. So three percent is the interest rate on a thirty year loan. The principal and interest payment on that is one thousand six hundred and two dollars and ten cents. Let's just say sixteen hundred a month. Sixteen hundred a month and interest. So now let's take it and to say four percent. Four percent. Okay. I like where your head's at. So same deal, four hundred thousand dollar purchase, ninety-five percent, three eighty loan amount, uh, four interest rate, thirty year term, payment. 1814 18 so that 1% a month so i can't do math in my head real quick what's 216 divided by 8 27 so every 0.125% interest your monthly payment's going to go up about 25 to $30 on a $400,000 loan on a $380,000 loan $400,000 purchase yes that's okay. a I mean, the, the, the hard part is, is, so when you're looking at like, like cost, right? Let's go on the low end. So say it's $200 difference, right? So 200 times 12 times 10. So over the course of that time period, right? Just over like a 10 year time period, you're going to cost yourself an additional $24,000 by waiting to see if something plateaus, right? Like... And, and what is that plateau worth to you as an individual, right? Like, and that's, that's kind of like you're playing with an unknown, which is interest rates, and you're playing with an unknown, which is, which is appreciation. And how do you know when the right time to get into the market is, right? Like if, if I come to you as a buyer and I say, Steve. Yes. I would like to get a really good deal on a home. And what I'm looking for is when things start to crash, right? Like if, if they're assuming that a crash comes in and I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to explain the thought process because are you really, and, and I'm going to go on a tangent here. Are you really going to start like, wait, okay, are you still the buyer? Or are you well, bouncing I'm, back and forth? I, I'm, I'm, I'm buyer and exactly. <laughs> like I, I, as I'm starting to talk through it, like the idea of waiting, right? Because I think I'm going to get a deal on a house like my, my pragmatic brain says, okay, so are we waiting until it plateaus as a buyer or am I waiting until it crashes? Because I don't know if somebody that's going to come to you and say, as soon as this market starts to take a dive, that's when I want to buy. Like that, that wouldn't even make any sense. I literally have never even thought about that. Right. So like if it plateaus and there's like an inkling that it's going to go down, Right, like if somebody comes to you and says, "I'm waiting because I want to get a deal on a house," I think almost answer almost has to be like, "Well, then you're just gonna wait forever," because because if I can buy a house right now for five hundred, and then all of a sudden that house is four fifty, then four hundred, I'm like, "Oh, that, let's see how low it goes." I mean, I guess you just wait until you see how low it goes. Right, and are you gonna start buying on the downhill slide? I I wouldn't do that. Like me, that would that would scare the bejesus out of me. Like, I thought of that. You know, and, and neither did I until we just started talking about it because it's like you often hear like, I think this is going to crash and I want to pick up on the on the downhill slide. Oh, great. It. Let's wait until the market starts crashing and you can buy it as prices are falling to the ground. 
mind blown. Like I, that's a conversation I've never. I like talking with you, Pat. Right, and, and again, it just kind of hit me. I never really thought about that because it's like, and that's where it goes. Like the right time to buy. What you said earlier is, is inspirational. It's like the right time to buy is the right time for you. The right time to sell is the right time for you to sell. Instead of looking at it so much and forecasting the economics and interest rates. Interest rates are going to go up at some point. Do you have any idea? I mean. You know, I think this, you know, and again, I don't know when this is going to air, but the Fed is going to stop buying in such bulk mortgage-backed securities, which is called like quantitative easing. There's a lot of things that point to the direction that that should cause interest rates to start to go up a little bit in mortgages. But there's also a school of thought saying like, you know, depending on how this all shakes up, maybe they're going to stay stable. The hard part is for me, when I, when I look at this also from from a we want to put people in homes like it's good the real estate market drives a good chunk of our economy like that's it's that's proven and all of a sudden if you raise interest rates right like we just did a four hundred thousand dollar purchase at a 380 loan amount and the difference is two hundred dollars a month that's a big difference in qualification right like yeah. so that person right unless they're making more money as interest rates go up which we don't really necessarily know that that's going to be the case and I'm using that as an example, and let's just say that that's the maximum qualification for someone. If the interest rates go up one percent, I'm guessing they're going to lose about forty thousand dollars of buying power. Right, and now all of a sudden you're threading a needle, which that's that's where things could could cause a dip in the market, right? Or appreciation is because, well, man, I used to be able to buy this four hundred thousand dollar home. Now I can only buy a three hundred fifty thousand dollar home because I don't qualify for it, which again, that's gonna all level set some things. So keeping mortgage interest rates low, and again, I, I, I'm not sophisticated enough to really speak at that at a super high level. Um, there are some great people to watch to have a better understanding of that. Um, but that in and of itself is what could cause a little bit of a, you know, a plateau because as interest rates go up, people aren't gonna be able to buy as much home. Um, and that's where like prices might come down a little bit but you also might not qualify for as much. Which also is your cost to procure, right? So like sitting on the sidelines, does it make sense to sit on the sidelines, you know? And I can tell you, I, and I guess when I think 2006 and what are we in 2021, so I've been doing this 15 years-ish, a little more. Um, I'm a banker, so my math isn't very good. I've never had somebody come to me and say, man, I really wish I hadn't stretched on that house. I've had people come back and say, I wish I had spent more. I wish I would have stretched a little bit more. Because the thing is, when I talk to people, most of the time they're shocked in how much they qualify for. Very rarely are people, after a conversation, going, huh, I thought I'd qualify for more home than that. Most of the time it's the other way around. And typically, you know, the only time that we're really getting into max max qualifications a lot of times and as you and I have talked about is when it's a hyper competitive situation and it's a hyper competitive market right now. So that does come across the board a little bit more, but oftentimes, and that's the other thing about a crash, most people aren't stretching themselves to the very, very, very max. All right, well that wraps up this episode. Thank you so, so much for sticking with us all the way to the end. I do want to take a second to send out a huge thank you to Debs Baird for her skills behind the editing board and to Ezel, aka Ethan Zirin Brown, for his musical wizardry. Please do take a minute to rate 
and review and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. It really does help. You want to say anything, Pat? No. Perfect. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. And when I say see you, I mean you'll hear us, because we can't see you. <laughs>